Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast. I'm Jacqueline. I'm Augustus. Together we are the Galaxy Electric, and this month we are covering Halim Eldab, who is an Egyptian-American composer, and usually the headline you see, if you Google his name or if he's come across your plate, is that he's the father of electronic music. And there is a lot being written about, or that has been written about, um, his contributions to early electronic music, especially tape music. And there's a lot of debate about the idea that Pierre Schaeffer, you know, is the father of electronic music. He coined the term music concrete and made the first known, you know, uh, electroacoustic piece of music. And what we've come to find is that that's actually not historically accurate, but it's sort of uh, one of those things um, that we've talked about before where a lot of people all over the world before there was the internet or even really good telephone services, people all over the world were working on similar ideas without knowing each other or collaborating or knowing what the other person was figuring out. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We've been having a lot of fun doing the research in our private Facebook group, which is called the Cosmic Tape Music Club. If you're not already part of that, we'd love to have you just request to join and we will let you in the doors of the group uh, where we share, um, you know, everything we're researching for the month, as well as any other fun finds, uh, music or articles as well as your own personal music that you might be working on in this vein, even if it's not exactly cosmic tape music. It all starts in the group. Yeah. So we started this, these conversations as part of the group and eventually now it's a podcast. So this is episode four and last month was Wendy Carlos. So go ahead and, you know, listen to that one as well. This will be a fun introduction for all of us to Halim Eldab. So, there's always a fun place to start, which is when they were born. I came across a lot of posts around celebrating his birthday, you know, later in life, that referred to his birthday as his 4,085th spirit journey or something like that. And oh. I don't know who to ask or how to find out what the story is behind that. I saw a lot about, for some reason, there was a lot centered around his 80th birthday. Hmm, I um, wonder why. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's definitely a milestone. He did live well beyond that, too, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. He was born in 1921, so he actually would have been 100 years old this March. So we're recording this in April, and just one month ago, he would have had his 100th birthday. He would have had his name announced by Willard Scott on and, the Today uh, Show. Yes. <laughs> that's amazing to to think because he is also this figure who... Is that still happening? I don't even know if that's still happening. I don't know with COVID if that's been happening. But the idea that he is, um, you know, lived in America for a long time and, you know, passed away here in America... But just the idea that he's this amazing, influential, important pioneer of early electronic music living in Ohio, who just ends up on the, it was his hundredth birthday on the Today Show and people wouldn't know, you know, what we know about him and who he is, you know, to so many musicians. Mm -hmm. I like that idea. That sounds really funny to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good old Kent State, Ohio. Yeah, we're we're kind of jumping all over as we always do because we like to approach this from obviously the biography of the person is important because it gives you context of, you know, where they were in the world while they were exploring these ideas and who they might have interacted with and kind of what what technologies would have been available to them. So that's why like dates and places are important in our discussions, but mostly we're just like digging through the archives looking for anything we can about tape music and using the studio as the instrument. And he really embodies that so much. The more I read, you know, the more I want to know. That's usually the case, don't you find, in yeah. our explorations? Yeah, usually it's the door is cracked open and I just want to open it and look and see what's in the rest of the room. And, <laughs> and like never leave, I right. know. And then like open a side door and be like, oh, Sun Ra's over here. Or, you know, having a good everyone's time. hanging out. Uh, so where are we? Valhalla? Yes, we might as well be. Or Saturn. Most, of, I mean, yeah, most of these people that we cover are either really reclusive or have been 
you know, have passed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is, it's kind of, uh, cosmic that we didn't know when his birthday was or that he would have been a hundred when we decided to cover him. We decided to cover him because he is foundational to what this, you know, what our group is about, what our study is about, what influences our music making. And while there's tons of amazing artists that we can cover and will cover and have covered that explored these same ideas, worked with synthesizers, you know, innovated in electronic music. This uh, research that we're doing is really about tape and how tape music or the use of tape and the machines that had to be invented for them and everything that came out of using tape as a medium is, you know, the origins of electronic music in a way. So that's why we're, we're excited to kind of lay this cornerstone of our group and our studies as, you know, Halim El-Dab is really the beginning of tape music from the space age, as we like to call it. Doing creative things, doing musical things with uh, pre-recorded sound, you know, using wire recorders and tape recorders, um, you know, as the medium. In this like specific era when it would have been, you know, easy to get tubes, easy to get tape. You know, maybe not so easy to get the machines, but, you know, this stuff was out there and commercially available. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, I feel like when tape machines first came out, they were sort of like trying to use a fax machine in the early 80s. Yes. Cutting edge, but very frustrating. Like you could go to a place where they might have one that you could rent. Or <gasps> yes. Having to go to Kinko's. Use, yeah, use it Absolutely. for a time, you know, check it out, <laughs> so to speak. You know, the Jacques Fresco model of civilization. Where everything's uh, a library. <laughs> yeah, where yeah. everything's a library. Ask us about Jacques Fresco if you're curious. <laughs> That's for another podcast. Like our fans need to. <laughs> I know, right? So I do just want to point out some highlights, things you may already know about Halim Dab if you've heard his name before, um, or things that might be of interest Because, you know, you're listening to this podcast, so obviously you're interested in similar things to us. Um, He was raised in Cairo, and he was the youngest of 9 or 12 children. I have that note somewhere, and I keep mixing it up. 9 or 12. He's the youngest of mostly... From what I read, I only saw name, names of sons. So I don't know if they were all sons, but he's the youngest. And he grew up in Cairo in a very hip experimental arts neighborhood that his family was extremely musical and social and supported the arts even though his father worked in agriculture it wasn't like you know they were art artists you know but there was a, a love of the arts and a supporting of the arts and this is in he moved there in 1932 to Cairo and he would have been about 11 So most of his, you know, the life that you remember, right? The ages that you actually remember stuff. He was living in Cairo and his Mm. older brothers were really influential. It sounds like they were having a pretty good time hanging out, you know, sounds like they all played music together and had social events at the house all the time. That sounds like a fun environment to me. Very supportive of the creative process. So they had a baby grand piano. They had, they had a list somewhere of all the instruments they had in their house. Um, they had some traditional instruments. They had some things that you would expect. Um, some things that were more specific to Egyptian culture. And he got to explore all of those instruments and sounds and ideas and see what other people were doing with them, you know, kind of an observer. So his, his brothers were really supportive of teaching him how to play music too. So he played piano and all these other fun instruments. And by the age of 11, he had his first composition. He did his first composition at 11. At age 14, he started going to a listening group, which sounds like a discord, but in real life in Cairo, (laughs) where they would you know, find these records of, I think even like Edgar Varese might've been in the mix and they would listen to these experimental avant-garde compositions on, you know, in their, their listening circle that I guess they had to go to in order to have the equipment and the, you know, the actual release to listen to. And then by 15, he started studying music with someone. But in 1932, this is something really cool too. So about like 
you know, him growing up in Cairo, having a musical artistic family. When they moved there, the International Cairo Congress of Arab Music that was hosted by the king at the time, who was also a musician himself, and he was a very avid supporter of the arts. So they put on this Congress of uh, Arab Music, and there was a very well-supported um you know, from the top down, right? From the king all the way down, people were supporting the arts in Cairo. You know, the fact that that was a place that the arts were being supported and that he grew up there, you know, we get to experience the fruits of that. Once again, right place, right time, it sounds like, for Halim to be growing up in Cairo. While he was at this Congress of Arab Music, he actually met Bella Bartok and saw wire recorders being used for the first time. This is 1932. So wire recorders play a very important role in this story. So I know we talk a lot about tape and reel-to-reel, but before there was a tape machine, there was a wire recorder. And the, the reproduction value, like the, the fidelity, was never really anywhere near what tape exactly. had to offer. So, that it had, so the story goes that he studied music and it always remained a hobby. Like I said, his first composition was at age 11. And then at age 21, I want to say, yes, 1942, he submitted a composition to a, a, a contest. It was actually sponsored by the Egyptian Opera House. And he won first place for this piano composition. But at the time, he was going to Cairo University for agriculture. That was kind of the family trade. So he was actually very dedicated to his work as an agricultural consultant, um, even though music is what he's known for and what, you know, his legacy and what he lived his life doing. But in those early years, he, you know, he went to university and he got his career going. And in the meantime, he's like doing music on the side, right? So he does that first piece in 1942, wins that contest. And then here come the brothers again. One of his older brothers actually worked at the radio station and was really into, you know, the gear side of stuff. And so he had access to Radio Cairo, the radio station. And what was there but a wire recorder. So he and his friends would check the wire recorder out of the studio and use it portably, even though it wasn't really meant for that. And what he started doing was similar to Pierre Schaefer, um, who around a similar time frame, was going around Paris, filming the sounds of industrialization right? The sounds of life in the, in the modern era. What Halim al-Dab was doing was going around Cairo and other parts of Egypt as well, and recording the sounds of life in the streets. So this is a, a much different source material than what Pierre Schaefer created his first music composition, which is the train song in English mm -hmm. is what I usually see it as. Um, but what Halim was recording was a ceremony that was for women only. So he had to disguise himself. Dirty dog. Him and his friends would disguise themselves in the dress and hide the recorder under, underneath their clothes. And they would go to these ceremonies where they were doing an exorcism, a public exorcism. And this was apparently a very common a ceremony that would be something you could find pretty easily. And he went to quite a few of these and recorded them. So it's all female voices performing this exorcism ritual. And then he took those wire recordings back to the radio station, the recording studio there. And it actually had movable walls. Maybe they, you know, had the ability to change some things around and, and make, you know, the space have a different, um, you know, reverb time or whatever. Right, exactly. So this is in 1942 to 1944, right? That, that time frame. So the fact that he, you know, was in a city that had this kind of equipment or this kind of a space 
is pretty unique, I think. Absolutely. I have, you know, a little snippet from an article I found. So I'm going to try to piece from that some of the equipment he was using to make this. It's called the Expressions of Czar. And the ceremony is called the Czar Ceremony. Um, over the years, snippets of this, it was a 25-minute piece. A shorter version of it is called a wire recorder piece. It, because it's considered, wire recorder piece is considered the first piece of electrical acoustic music or tape music. Um, so he did use an echo chamber in that recording studio. He had, you know, the re-recording room. He had, it says electronic machinery with adjustable voltage controls. I'd say maybe test, test equipment, equipment, you know, like oscillators Yeah, existed, you know, tube stuff. He did this process where he took the wire recordings and then re-recorded them to reel-to-reel tape. But in the process, he did this many, many times, and he would uh, filter out certain harmonics or overtones um, because he wanted to create new rhythms out of the overtones that are clashing together. So So it sounds like he was trying to... um create his own beat frequencies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He talks about how the reason that he manipulates the sound so much um, is because he's trying to convey the feeling, sort of that, that intangible aspect of being in the room, the energy that's being shared. Right. So it's sort of, it is a lot more about feeling and perceiving the sound from that experience, like how that experience made him feel versus capturing an exact like replica of, of what it sounded like. He completed the piece in 1944. Instead of performing it, they played the recording off the tape machine <laughs> in this art gallery in Cairo. So I think it was like the first time that he, someone made a piece electronically that was supposed to be experienced electronically rather than played on an instrument. Obviously, Which, because there was these equi this equipment didn't exist before. And also, I would say what that did was it sort of created the performance standard for tape music mm -hmm. because that tape music is still performed in that way. But then a lot of times people will perform it in a spatial way as well. Right. They'll mix it mm -hmm. right exactly in quad or whatever. Yeah, I don't think he was quite doing that. I think it was just magical enough that he had made this piece and then was... Gonna let people hear was it. Able to play the actual piece. <laughs> sort of like an extension of those listening parties he went to, or that listening group he was part of mm -hmm. early on in his uh, year. So anyway, this this piece was really important in his life because not only do we mark it as the the beginning of electronic music, the first piece of tape music, um, but also because it was so well received, someone from the U.S. Embassy in Cairo um, was like obsessed with him and was like, you have to perform this again. And then helped actually wrote his Fulbright scholarship application for him. Um, because what happened is when people who knew, you know, kind of what was going on in Europe and America with electronic music, they were like, wait, you need to be connected with all these people. So he helped him get a uh, full, the first Fulbright scholarship that he got. Um, and then he went to the U S in 1950, which I would just like to take a moment to say that that seems like a really important moment in his yeah, life. That's why I didn't want to gloss over it. It's, it's super, uh, pivotal to his growth as an artist, I think, you know, because in every prolific person's life, there's always that, I, I feel like I can always pinpoint it to mm -hmm. a moment where like, okay, now, like things are on the up and up for this person. Like now, now they have begun the chapter of mm -hmm. what, what ends up becoming the rest of their life. Yeah. You know? That's and absolutely like true. Because this... I think up to that point, he was an agricultural consultant and then his music, even though it was a side thing for him, you know, he, he really impacted people and they wanted to see him grow more, you know, it's sort of like they saw the spark in him and that he wasn't going to have access to what he needed to, if he stayed where he was, because even though Cairo is like super hip and one of the first places, actually, this is a really fun fact that the King, after this conference of Arab music made sure that tape recorders were imported to Cairo 
And that's why he had access to some of the first wire and reel tape machines that to get to continue to play with because they actually had them for sale at shops in Cairo. Pierre Schaefer was saying like even he couldn't get tape Eldob was able to afford tape before Schaefer could. So there's this other layer to why Eldob was doing this before Schaefer was the access because, you know, Cairo was an affluent city at the time and that king was all about making sure that there was funding for filming and broadcast and recording industries. So another thing that I love about Halim Eldob besides his music and his innovative spirit, but just the way he talks about things and the choices he makes. And I think it's really important for us to understand and celebrate both paths, like Halim Eldob's path, as well as Pierre Schaefer's because of what they both did uh, in this medium, but in they came at it from different spirits, I would say. Mm. Um, when Halim Dab was presented with the option to work with a Moog synthesizer, he actually turned it down because he much preferred using, you know, voltage control oscillators and playing with the studio as the instrument, which he actually said that. That's, I believe, a direct quote, that he preferred using the studio as the instrument. And that's how we've been describing what the source of kind of all this music is for us. Like if the studio is being used as the instrument, then we're probably, that's probably, you know, under the umbrella of cosmic tape music. And I compared that when we were, you know, discussing this at breakfast one morning, I compared that to the idea. Um, like if you were a electronic music producer and, you know, some electronic music producers are more sample based, mm, you know, while yes, others I do remember this conversation now. are, you know, more synthesizer based, you know? And so for example, like, you know, in the world of house music, you know, you might get something like electro house, which is pretty much just sequenced synthesizers, you know, MIDI controlling the filter cutoff and, you know, basically everything you hear is a synthesized sound, you know, almost completely void of samples, mm -hmm. you know, whereas, you know, another type of house music might be, you know, heavy with, you know, completely made on samplers or, you know, what have you. And so I feel like, you know, with Halim, he's basically said like, you know, the, the process of, you know, recording sound, at, you know, in the, in the idea of using these sounds creatively, that is, you know, what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. Th that is what I'm excited about, you know, and that is how I will continue uh, to make music, which reminds me of somebody like uh, Delia Derbyshire. You know, yeah. she also preferred, you know, cutting the tape versus, you know, the synthesizer and almost thought that the synthesizer cheapened um, well, yeah. electronic music. She did put a lot of hours into that tape splicing. Yeah. And I, I don't know that Halim necessarily thought that it cheapened it's not a, it. He's not a purist. I would say he did work with the RCA synthesizer at the Columbia Princeton electronic Which music is studio. Amazing. It's amazing. So we have a lot to still cover. And so what I just want to, uh, you know, encourage you to do as you're listening is to find his music on Spotify or CD baby. Um, and listen to all these things There's we're not talking much about. It. And, you know, find those articles. There's videos of him kind of pontificating about life and art. And I would just encourage you to explore this as much as possible because he is going to inspire you. I guarantee it. And I'd love to hear any stories you have about how he's going, how he inspires you through this process. But the other thing I want to talk about is there's this path we can go down of his biography, which has some magical things in it. The other side of it is just his philosophies. And one of my favorite things that I came across was how he described working with tape. Since this is a tape music podcast, I thought I would focus on that. Lay it on <laughs> us. So he had a process which he called a generation. He would say his first generation was kind of crude, right? So it might be the raw samples, the raw recordings. And then he would... As he called it, he would go generation after generation after generation until he was happy with the result, until it was really evoking the spirit of the sound that he was trying to work with. Um, but he would line up all the tapes on the wall by generation. And, you know, he would go to the wall and he would pick it out and mix it up again and then make something from that. And then that's like a whole new generation. 
And I love that because that is a lot of how I think about making tape music too, is it's the, obviously the art of using the equipment and recording to tape, but it's also then like the next layer and the next layer and the next layer, how you degrade it or manipulate it, um, through those same processes over and over again. Um, and it creates something new. It creates sound that doesn't exist in the world. And I think that's what he was chasing. This idea that there are sounds that the human ear can't hear. There are sounds that clash together in the air and you hear them only in that moment and they can't be captured because it's the experience of being in that space. And so when you use tape to make music and you build these layers to it, these generations, you um, collage it in different ways, you are kind of getting at the heart of that, of this idea that you're creating something that kind of represents the idea of this new sound that didn't exist until I manipulated all these layers. Right. Right. Yeah. Like something that would be impossible to maybe, um, you, you couldn't write it or compose it or try to make it happen. It's, it's a little bit of those happy accidents too. And in listening to his music, Mm -hmm. I definitely, you know, observed that that was, um, a heavy influence, that concept at least, because there's just so many timbres. There's rarely a sound that you hear that sounds like generation one, Mm -hmm. if we're using his philosophy. Um, you know, the sounds are always a couple generations deep in processing. Um, you know, whether it be pitch manipulation or the space, um, you know, the that it was being spatial relationships mm-hmm. between, you know, the sound source and the walls and, you know, whatever else is in the space, um, for it to bounce off of, um, you know, and, and a lot of times, you know, the sounds that you end up hearing, you know, sound, you know, in a way space age, you know, without necessarily, you know, being a he, cliche of what we mm-hmm. think of as sci-fi related sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did they just hear some seem, of that in they seem music. out of this mm-hmm. world. They seem almost like stuff that I hear on NASA's website, you know, mm, where it's like, yeah. you know, the sounds of Mars or whatever. Like you just, you hear these things that don't sound like they naturally occur in. That's a great reference point. So the sounds from Mars obviously are going to sound this different, planet. right? Cause it's a different atmosphere. And I think that he was after that. Mm-hmm. He wanted to create stuff that, that wasn't, isn't really possible. And so, you know, I think that that goes hand in hand with his, um, preferring, you know, the, the recording as the art form, you know, versus, um, you know, synthesizers, because as you hear in his music, like even if he uses a synthesizer sound, it's just that's one generation, right? You know, like there's usually processing. Mm-hmm. There's spatial stuff going on. There's reverbs. There's pitch shifting. You know, like you don't just hear like a raw oscillator buzz. You know what I mean? From his exactly, style. and especially a lot of his work. So there's a compilation called um, "Crossing into the Electric Magnetic." which was a phrase that he referred to a lot, the electric magnetic. Mm. Um, And he worked with someone to help him put together this compilation of all his works from, you know, this era where he's working with wire recorders and tapes, as well as when he was at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Studio. This was around 2001 when this compilation came out. And it all came about because there was this, of course, a cluttered storage room like much of the people we have covered so far, there's always a storage unit somewhere with their old studio equipment or something like that. Which, by the way, happens to be when he turned 80. That just oh, happens. Is, to, 2001 right. was the year that he turned 80. That's so when he turned 80. Okay. There was a big, like, I don't know, just the whole world discovered him all at once. They found, you know, all these unraveling reel-to-reel tapes and things that um, then became this new release. And... That's a very uh, helpful guide. So if you want to start somewhere, Crossing Into the Electric Magnetic is a great album compilation to get started. So just to jump on some of those fun stories, you know, a little bit of his biography. He did get that Fulbright scholarship. He did go to the U.S. in 1950. Um, He went there to continue experimenting with tape and composition. And throughout the time from like 1950 to 19. 
58, he was getting like all these grants and things and he got grants to work on really cool experimental projects. Um, and then in 1958, he got a grant to do some work at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Studio or Music Center. Sorry. Um, and while he was there, he got to meet, you know, Otto Lunig and, you know, John Cage. And he became friends with these people and worked with them. And um, he ended up composing for Martha Graham. So he has this mix of sort of like works for dance and opera you know, works for piano, and then these tape compositions. Hitting on those fun points again, he did end up becoming uh, a professor at the university in Ethiopia and then at Howard University in D.C. So he's, throughout this time, he did come to the U.S. to work with these, you know, cutting-edge electronic musicians in the 50s. And then in the 60s, he's kind of going back and forth um, to uh, Africa and America. And... He, while he was in Africa, um, actually formed a troupe that ended up uh, touring the U.S. in 1969, which is the same year he was working at Howard University and he was working with the Smithsonian. So I feel like he just, he came to America, he hit the ground running, he got plugged in with all the best, most important, influential people. Doesn't sound like he was <laughs> in his office very much. No, he was <laughs> out there doing all kinds of fun stuff. Right? Like we think of him from this electronic music, tape music standpoint, but his legacy and his teaching was in the more ethnomusicology side of things or composition. But he was interested in how all of these things, you know, connected. And he was just very, like, if you listen to him talk, it's not, it's not going to be facts and figures. You know, there's this one review we found where he's being compared to his peers, you know, like Lamont Young and how, um, or Terry Riley even. I'm not sure who wrote this article or why those specific people were being compared to him at this time, but um, just that his music was not as mathematical, Yes, I saw what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a quick chat about that. So like I'm saying, when if you watch interviews with him, it's going to be this kind of spiritual, emotional approach to things. That he had this sort of joy for life and humanity and the spirit of things. He may have created Folktronica. He may have created Folktronica. <laughs> I would buy that, absolutely. Yeah, he liked to incorporate electroacoustic elements and um, and electronic elements together after some generations. That makes <laughs> sense. So when he first came to America, he... Well, right before... Okay, this is such a fun little tidbit. So when he was meeting all these people in Cairo who found out he was you know, a musician, a composer, and they loved what he was doing and they wanted him to come to America, he asked them to give him a bunch of American music. And he ended up getting a stack of records of native American music. And when he went to do his, you know, program in America, he ditched it to go study native American music at another university once he got there and kind of saw what it was going to be about. So just this idea that someone was like, Oh, American music, that's native American music here. And that was his impression of what American composers were working on right at that moment. I think that flipped a switch for him that, you know, no, I know this stuff exists when he gets to these like American institutions and they don't know what he's talking about. Right. He knows this stuff exists and he goes and seeks it out because it's, you know, more connected to what he's interested in. So I just love that story. Okay, so, you know, he formed this, this musical troupe. It was called an orchestra, but I think it was like traditional instruments. Um, I think what it was, was that he brought together music from all over the country in Ethiopia, I believe, because that's where he was teaching at the time, Ethiopia. He brought together musicians and instruments from all over the country that had never played together. So these instruments that had never kind of existed in the same orchestra together, as well as a lot of voices too. And he put this troupe together as 1963. By 1969, he, you know, he's back in America. They come to tour America. He goes to work at Kent State University. Well, what happens the following year at Kent State University? when the National Guardsmen opened fire on the students, on the anti-war protesters at Kent State University in May of 1970. And he had just started working there. 
And it, he was actually walking through campus as it was happening, like from one building to another. So he like experienced it, even though he wasn't harmed or anything. But it was so traumatic to him that he had to leave and he went to Maine for a while and worked on an opera with some students in Maine. It sounds like he was always working with students too. Even up like the, the stuff that I find of him, like from a couple years ago, he was still working with young students. Um, but that opera was called the opera flies. And there's some characters that are based on, you know, the specific people he encountered during this shooting. So just the fact that he was part of that too, like he's, he's kind of, I don't, I know we always say everybody's a Forrest Gump character, but he's such a Forrest Gump character. I didn't say it. I can't get over it. I was thinking it, but I definitely wasn't going to say it. It's really hard to believe. But yeah, he was totally a Forrest Gump. Another thing. So we mentioned the crossing into the electric magnetic, that compilation album. Half of that album is an opera that he wrote at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center called Layla visitations. Mm, mm, so good. I love it so much. It's a lot of voices, but it's, it's an electronic opera and he did it in 1961. The amount of names of people, amazing, famous, influential pioneer people that he crossed paths with or worked with or knew. I mean, the list is so long. Yeah. So he is an inspiration to us and we've had so much fun listening to his music and learning more about him. He's such a like effervescent spirit. I just want to wrap a little bit about how awesome the, his like, you know, generations is what you called it, yeah. but like his, mm-hmm. his timbre, uh, choices, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, knowing how his process, uh, you know, a little bit about his process, at least, you know, that he like did layers and layers of sound processing, like wherever he stopped, it was, it was a beautiful place, mm. you know, like I, I knew I, when to stop. Yeah. There was just so many timbres that I was listening to, you know, like individual sounds in his music where I was just like, wow, I swear, like that is so modern. That is so, you know, that sounds like a, an FM patch or, you know, whatever. Like it's just, he's just pulling sounds out that I'm like, man, he was, he stopped there, you know, like he was mm. hearing this as a sound that he was like hoping to get to, you know, cause I, I have to believe, you know, it's like a lot of times we are, um, looking to obtain the result mm, that is a sound, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. But we don't always hit the mark. Yeah. For some reason, I just imagine Halim being the kind of artist that hit his mark or got close to it at least. From what he was imagining or hoping to right. achieve. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, like just to, to hear these sounds that he was essentially stopping on, you know, is like, okay, that, that sound is done. I'm going to mm-hmm. let that be that layer. I'm just like, wow, this stuff sounds so cool and so modern. And like, he would be very much at home in today's um, experimental music scene, you yeah. know, with the type of sounds that he absolutely has created. And many of them, you know, I'll, I'll hear and be like, Oh, I got to try to recreate something like that. You know, they're just so inspirational. Um, and I hear a lot of my other favorite tape musicians, um, work, you know, like more modern artists in his work, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, I, I feel like they have been influenced by him at some point. We're going to take a moment to do the personal music section of our podcast. Um, this is a very special selection, uh, as the artist has actually had the privilege of working with Helene Aldab, uh, at Kent State University. So, uh, stay tuned to find out more about that story and relationship. Um, he collaborated with Elaji Sora on this body of work and the name of the album is Beyond Geography. I'm going to play uh, two selections in a row. Uh, the first one is the third track called Toto Kilo. And the second one is the fifth track called Bata Kola Daha. Thank you. 
but it's just been a really great experience getting to explore, you know, the timbres of Halim al-Dab. So I highly recommend that you do that if you haven't done it already. Yeah, I definitely feel like he's one of the people that has connected with our process the most. The way that we make our music felt very much aligned with everything I was reading him describe his process and his philosophies. So made us feel cut from a similar cloth. Yeah. So I was like, speak. Oh, we aren't swimming in the unknown. Like it's mm. been swum in, swum in. I will, I will claim him as godfather. <laughs> yeah. Of so what we do at least. Yeah. I'm really what glad that we got the chance to cover him this month and we look forward to talking even more about him in the group. So please join us in the cosmic tape music club private Facebook group. We'll put a link in the show notes for you to join us there and please send us any stories, links, personal anecdotes, things we should listen to. We love hearing from you. The research starts here, really. Yeah. This is just the beginning and we're just, you know, as always hanging out with all our favorites all the time, getting to know how they're connected to each other and how we're all still connected today. Speaking of one of my favorites, um, thank you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to take a second to mention the Source of Uncertainty podcast. Yes. That is hosted by our friends Kyle and Robert. They are group members. Uh, you can find that of, at sourceofuncertainty.audio. And it's available where all your podcasts are found. Um, but I highly recommend checking that out. It's a, it's a monthly spot, you know, with artist features, sometimes um, sandwiched in between. Um, but it's very entertaining, um, for, I would say all things synth, but, you know, particularly in the Buchla realm. Mm -hmm. Um, so check those guys out. Great. Well, thanks for joining us again on the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast, and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.